Amen. If we could have our ushers come forward, we're going to take communion. Would one of you ladies take care of that? Communion, what a beautiful time. And the season that we're in, it's upon us. It is a time of reflection. to read with you the story out of Matthew of the Last Supper. I felt it was appropriate to read this particular passage for this morning. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? As you go into the city, he told them, you will see a certain man. Tell him, the teacher said, as my time has come. And I will eat the Passover meal with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus told them and prepared the Passover meal there. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the twelve disciples. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one had turned. Am I the one, Lord? He replied, one of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me. For the Son of Man must die, as the scriptures declare long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays me. It would be far better for that man had never even been born. Judas, the one whom would betray him, asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, you have said it. And as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. And then he broke it into pieces and gave it to the disciples. Take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. This morning as you have that little cup of juice which represents the blood of Jesus and that bread which represents his body, I want you to know today that this does not save you. Can I get an amen there? We believers in Christ today celebrate communion and the cross and the, and the price that he paid. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, a part of the fellowship, this is yours to drink and enjoy. But I want you to know today that we come into the season, it's the Easter season, everybody kind of ramps up and starts getting excited about these things. Isn't that cross beautiful, by the way? My dad did an amazing job on that, getting it ready. It fell this week. We had a lot going on with it. But uh, it, uh, it's an amazing thing. For us to reflect and look at this, the beautiful song service. But I do want us to take a few moments before we partake together. Just to reflect, just to look. Maybe you're encouraged and you say, man, thank you, God. Maybe there are some things in your heart where you need to get right with God. This is our time to do this and allow this fellowship and the company of everyone around here to go into the throne room of grace boldly and say, God, thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that covers everything in my life. Isn't that amazing?
You know, I was just thinking about this for a moment as we were here. This might be the only time and place where you don't hear a beep on your phone. Isn't that neat? Without the distractions, without everything on, this might be the only time this week where you don't have a notification or something that we just turn it all off and focus on what Christ has done for us. That's a powerful moment for all of us. Jesus did this for us. He did this for the mistakes of Steve Lapp tomorrow. Not just mistakes, he did this for my sins tomorrow. He did this for my sins next week and the week after and 10 years and 20 years if the Lord tarries, whatever. He did this stuff for Steve 20 years ago. It's kind of funny, I was driving around the other day and I was just actually repenting of some sins for him 10 years ago. The blood of Jesus Christ doesn't just go into your past, folks. It goes into our futures. It covers everything. Shall we partake together? Father, we thank you today that we can partake with you and enjoy the fellowship of your company. And God, we are covered by your blood. That we are washed white as snow today. We are clean. We are made righteous because you declare us righteous. We wear a robe of righteousness today, all of us who call on the name of Jesus Christ. And God, we thank you for the power to not just get us through, but cause us to be super victorious in our life. That even in our weaknesses and pains, it is in and through you that we have victory. And we declare that and stand upon that in the name and through the blood of Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen. 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 If we could have our young people go off to Children's Church. There's a great day in store for you. Matthew 16, if you have your Bibles. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 16, 21 through 28. This is getting very close to the end for Jesus' life and ministry here on earth. And so Jesus kind of gets more pronounced. You know, when things start to get... You know, you get closer to seasons and stuff in your life. You know how things kind of ramp up and things get a little more intense. Well, this was Jesus now. And so he went from talking in parables and kind of talking around things and kind of, you know, to really direct hit. Turn to someone and say, I need a direct hit. <laughs> so here we are, Matthew 16, 21 through 28. Jesus predicts his death. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly, that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hand of the elders and the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him. Don't we love Peter? Neat guy. For saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view and not from God's. And then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what you do, uh, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. And I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What an amazing statement. So Jesus goes right there and sets it up saying, I'm going to have to suffer before these religious priests. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to, I'm going to pay a huge price. And Peter pulls him aside and this isn't kind of the success story. You know, we have the, 
successory stuff and the success things we talk about church. This doesn't look like a good successful ministry for Jesus, does it? Not a good plan. And we're all Peter. We're all telling him, no, Jesus, not you. It's not going to happen to you. You've got a better situation and a thing happening. I read a statement this week uh, online, and it was by Todd Agnew. He's a Christian singer. And he had in his, in his song or his poem, whatever he wrote here, it said this. Did you know, did the cross cast a shadow on your cradle? Did you shudder each time you, your hammer struck a nail? How much heaven and how much earth were in this baby at birth? Did you know or did you wonder? You know, you think about that fact of Christ coming to earth. He came to earth to die for our sins. We hear that. The shadow of the cross, Jesus moved to Jerusalem, moving in the plan of God every step that he did. I only do what I see my father doing as Jesus is growing in obedience, and we say, wait a minute, Jesus was always obedient. Yes, but he had to be tested, and he was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He was tried, and the, he was proven out there in that wilderness, just like we are. We have the hypostatic union, which is a theological term for he was fully God and fully man. Jesus wasn't like a superhero when he came to earth. Everybody thinks that. You know, when Jesus, if he would have fallen down, if he rode his bike... They had bikes, I don't think they had bikes back then. <laughs> but he was skinned his knee. So he experienced all the pain of man. He was tempted at the core level every way that man has been. And yet he was fully God. When he was growing and he understood his plan and his purpose, even in the temple, he knew what was going on. And he pushes further and further. And we'll see in our Good Friday service, that moment in time where we see him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, God, if there is another way for this to happen, let's do it. But nevertheless, not my will, but Jesus is speaking more plainly. And the need to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer Many terrible things. I want you to know that all of us, by the way, live in the shadow of the cross. This cross will never leave you. In fact, Paul declared it. He said, I am crucified with Christ. And so there's a thing in our life where we are crucified with Christ as well. There's a, there's a plan where we have to die daily. So that's a form of crucifying things. How many of you know when you get up on the cross, it doesn't feel really good up there? And to carry that cross, you're alone. But I want you to know some necessary things in our life because I want to strip away the religious idea because people think in order from, for me to become a Christian, I can't do any fun things, I can't have a fun life. How many used to think that about uh, that way of Christianity in your life before? Well, was this just, you know, it's just you kind of feel that way like, oh no, what should I do and what should I be? I heard a beautiful statement by a, uh, a revivalist, I think it was John Wesley, and this guy had come to him and he had accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and he was a shoemaker, and he said, man, what should I do? Should I, should I be a missionary? What should I do? And he said, you know what you should do? You should make the best shoes in the city. So I say to you today, to be crucified with Christ doesn't mean that you're going to go head for the hills and be a missionary necessarily. God may call you to do that. You might need to be a missionary in your neighborhood. You might need to be a missionary at your business or at your work. God is pointing you and saying, listen, pick up your cross and walk alone with me. First things first, there's an amazing thing that must happen. Because Jesus knew, and he was moving along this road, and his destiny was to die. I can't imagine the struggle that we must go through understanding that I've got to go into this situation and it's, a, and it's a lonely place. The, the necessity of dislocation. Bruce Gordon writes, A slow, almost unseen exile, a dislocation from what is known that happened almost unconsciously. This dislocation creates a distance between us and what is known and what is comfortable. This exile creates a constant state of not feeling at home. No longer is it possible to fall in a state of blissful contentment in which we do not examine the world. The exile is constantly reminded of how things are around them and how, and what are, uh, how they are and not what they should be. Those of us who lead and believe in a time of spiritual ghostliness feel this dislocation around us 
It is the discomfort of feeling a great distance between the vision of the kingdom and the direction of the culture that we live in. See, many of us, we get into a place where we feel dislocated. How many of you feel a little dislocated from the culture you live in? I pray you do. And if you don't feel dislocated right now, I pray that you will get it. I pray that you will get to a place where you become desperate again and say, God, this is not how it should be. And I will also say to those of us who feel dislocated, don't purposely put yourself in a closet and say, well, the culture's bad and all this crazy stuff's going on, so I'm just going to exit stage left. Jesus had a beautiful prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus didn't come to the world to banish himself from the world. Jesus came to the world because he loved the world and he didn't want to see it lost anymore. But to a believer, someone who was white on hot, on fire for Jesus Christ, were just a little bit dislocated. We're a little uncomfortable. Maybe you go into a time of loneliness. Peter had declared this to Jesus. He said, this will never happen to you. Jesus was going in a different direction than even his disciples would even understand. How many of you went in a direction with Christ and people just didn't get it? I've got to go this way. Does it make sense to you? And this is that whole crowd. Many are chosen, or, or, many are called, but few are chosen. It's the hurt of a friend who leaves active faith or faith altogether and disappears into the beautiful apocalypse. It is the relentless pressure, Mark Sayers writes, that pastors and leaders and disciples face as we call people to submission and worship of God in a culture of seduction and pleasure. And the pre- in the presence of such pressure, we have before us two options. First, we can become bitter and more despondent and more isolated. We understand the situation we face and we flounder in the face of the challenge. Second, we can simply attempt to lessen the pressure by shaping our theology and spirituality and lifestyle to suit the dogma of the surrounding culture. We lessen the pressure by surgically removing those parts of our faith that clash with the mode of the day. And that's where I believe Christian faith many times is right now. We surgically pull out parts of our faith that don't jive with the culture that we live in. Be careful. Be careful when you start to create your own little Christian stew of what you feel is relevant and important in the culture right now. Folks, let me tell you something. This Bible will always be You may feel dislocated, and it's okay. Jesus, when he walked through earth, he didn't entrust his heart to no one. He had his disciples, but even they didn't get it. And so when you walk with the Father, there is a walk of loneliness or dislocation that you must go through. Elizabeth Elliot, who her husband, Jim Elliot, died in their first year of marriage when they became missionaries. And he was killed in that jungle by those Indians. And do you know what? That whole tribe came to Christ because of the faith that he placed in him. It's an amazing thing. Elizabeth Elliot was a widow the rest of her life. And she had this whole thing called the pathway to loneliness. Now this isn't going to be an exciting message to get up out of your seat kind of thing. But I want to challenge us when we feel lonely to not just kind of brush over it or busy ourselves, but that's our time to lock into God and say, God, what are you speaking to me? Turn to someone who can say, man, I need God right now. <laughs> Jesus dislocated himself even from the suggestions that Peter was offering. How many of you have those friends who will tell you what you want to hear and not what you need to hear? There are special Facebook friends. And we frenzy with these kind of folks. I want to tell you something. Get around people who will tell you stuff that you need to hear, maybe not what you want to hear. Dislocate if you haven't already. Dislocate yourself. Dislocate yourself. I heard a speaker say this, that for many in the church, Jesus is nothing more than the cherry on top of our lives. Folks, Jesus is not an accessory. He is a treasure worth selling all to gain. Coming to him marks the clearing of the table of our lives 
and the rebuilding all around him. Remember when Jesus came in and threw over the tables and the money changers and did everything and he was filled with zeal for his house? Do you know when God comes into our life, we want God to kind of snuggle next to us and tell us it's going to be okay. And do you know what Jesus does to us? He scatters the tables and he starts to make a mess and he said, this is my house. Where's the snuggly Jesus at? But Jesus, isn't it all going to be okay? Oh yes, it will be. Because you're walking with me and you're walking after my ways. But I won't have any of this stuff in my home anymore. And we live with idols and we create accessories. Maybe women here, you know how to accessorize. You know things and you have the jewelry here and this here. But let me tell you something. Jesus is not an accessory. He is not the cherry on top. And we go, that's cute. He's not our mascot. He is to be worshipped and he is infinite and he is God. Matthew 13, 44. Why don't we turn there real quick? You might feel isolated right now. It's okay. You might feel alone right now. It's okay. But we have to look at Christ with this kind of lens. Because if Jesus died that kind of death, don't you have to ask yourself, why did Jesus die that kind of death? I mean, we live in a culture now that kind of is the feel-good kind of moment. You've got to find those things that work for you. You do you. And I preach that over and over again of just how just horrible that, that, that statement is and that thinking is. But the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered the pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and he bought it. I've told you before, I watched the Curse of Oak Island. Any Curse of Oak Island followers in here? Maybe a couple. It's pretty awesome. Pretty good. These guys buy this island. I've told you the story. We're really ramped up. And it seems like every time that episode is on, these guys find another little thing. That's another key to the puzzle. But they're... They're, they love it. They're encouraged by it. They're like, man, we found this. They found this cool cross here. And they, they keep digging. And they keep discovering. And what really I love about that idea is the fact that these guys literally are all in for what they're doing. Going after the treasure. They want to spend everything they have to invest in the treasure that they're getting ready to find. And I think many of us in the church have gotten to the point where we kind of, again, accessorize our idea about who God is, and we kind of put them alongside of the other things in our life, and we really don't go all in for who Christ is. The blessings of the Lord, they far outweigh and outnumber the material loss and the persecution incurred in service to Him. In other words, we would have been fools not to give those things up in the past in order to run after Him. Turn real quick to Philippians chapter 3. Be careful when you hear people talking about their testimony and how they say how they used to do this and they were all involved with that. And it's almost like their testimony has become their past and really not their future and what they've been given. Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8. I love Paul's wording. I once thought these things were valuable... But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. What, a, what an amazing thing, isn't it? For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. Isn't it interesting how he even says this? He didn't say, I gave that stuff up to get more of this other stuff. He said, I gave this stuff so that I could know Jesus. To know Him. He gave it all up. And Paul wasn't a guy who didn't have things. He was a very powerful man. He had subjects. He, he, people served him. He could do what he wanted to. And yet he gave it all to know Jesus Christ. When you dislocate, you learn to have a dependence on God. Paul made a very powerful statement and he said this, I want to know Christ. A.W. Tozer wrote, 
Most of the world's great souls have been lonely. Loneliness seems to be the one price the saint must pay for saintliness. In the morning of the world, that pious soul Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. And while it is not stated in so many words, a fair inference is that Enoch walked a path apart from his contemporaries. Another loneliest man was Noah, who of all, of his, uh, who of all found grace in the sight of God, and every shred of evidence points to the aloneness of his life, even while surrounded by his people. Again, Abraham and Sarah and Lot, as well as many servants and herdmen. But who can read his story and the apostolic comment upon it without sensing instantly that he was a man whose soul was alike a star and dwelt apart? For as far as we know, the one word did God ever speak to him in the company of men. Face down he communed with God, and the innate dignity of a man forbade that he assume his posture in the presence of others. How sweet and solemn was the sense of the night and the sacrifice when he saw the lamps of fire moving between the peace of offerings. There alone in the horror of great darkness upon him he heard the voice of God and knew that he was a man marked for divine favor. Moses was a man apart, while yet attacked, or attached to the court of Pharaoh, he took long walks alone. And during one of these walks, far removed from the crowds, he saw an Egyptian and a Hebrew fighting and came to the rescue of his countrymen. After the result break with Egypt, he dwelt in among almost seclusion in the desert. There, while he watched sheep alone, the wonder of the burning bush appeared to him. And later, at the peak of Sinai, he crouched alone to gaze in fascinated awe at the presence, partly hidden, partly disclosed, within the cloud and the fire. I read that last night, putting this together. You know, we read the God of the Bible. We read the history. We read these men and women who are completely changed by God and the voice of God. And it literally hit me, the awe awe-inspiring presence of God in that moment. I just kind of turned and I knelt to God and just began to weep at his presence, realizing that the same God who spoke to Enoch, the same God that spoke to Mary, the same God that spoke to Joseph, the same God that spoke to Moses, is the same God that is wanting to speak to you and me. With the same powerful connection. But if we're to have it, you say, well, how do I get that? How do I get to know God? You must dislocate. And I don't know how you must dislocate. I will not give you steps on dislocating. I will tell you this, that if you know the Lord, and He knows you, my sheep, hear my voice, so when He calls to you and starts saying, unplug this, undo this, get away from that, move this from your life, dislocate! If we are to have any impact in this world, it's not for us to get more busy. It's for us to unhinge ourselves, so to speak, and dislocate from the normal operations we had and say, God, I want to hear from you like Moses heard from you. I want to hear from you like Abraham did. This Bible will never come to life if you don't expect the God of the Bible to come out of the pages of this. So you can't read this Bible just as a document saying, well, that was cute and good evidence there and good evidence there and go on an archaeological dig. Oh, speaking of archaeological, there's that. Go, go on those things. You must get back to the place where you dislocate and say, God, this same God yesterday, today, and forever, I want that same impact in my life, and you can have it. The necessity of the cross, pretty ugly thing. The Bible says that the cross is foolishness to men. Jesus said they hated me, they're going to hate you. So we don't need more tips on how to improve my life skills, how to be more organized. We don't need any of that. If you want some of that, you can go to one of those power conferences and they'll get you that. You can go to a cute TED talk and they'll give you good stuff. So if the cross is still relevant, we have to ask and the world has to ask why. I believe, and the scripture declares, that we were born in sin. 
I didn't need improvement. I needed my life to be completely remade. I was completely separated from God. Because we always say, well, God, there's some good people here, bad people there. Wasn't it beautiful how Jesus was even administering the cross while he was dying with a thief on the cross? And the thief on the cross, the one didn't believe and the other didn't. He said, before this day is over, you'll be with me in paradise. He was evangelizing even while he was dying. So what's the necessity of the cross? Was it for a generation of people that were more bad than us? How many of you know we live in a pretty sick world? We don't live in a good, partly good world. No matter how many cute things we do and come up with and how many cute headlines we can put in the paper, there is the horribleness of the heart of man. And when you see those things happen, you can understand that there is a real resident evil. And that there is a perfectly good God. And that man ran away from God. And because we have the world we live in now, it's because of the sin that we have established. R.C. Sproul wrote this, People tell me they are not Christians. Not so much because they have never been convinced of the truth claims of Christianity, but because they've never been convinced of what the Bible teaches. How many times have you heard people say, That may be true, but I don't personally feel the need for Jesus. Or I don't need church. Or I don't need Christianity. I thought about these things and came to the conclusion that people are not concerned about the atonement. They are basically convinced that they have no need for it. They are asking, how can I be, they aren't asking, how can I be reconciled to God or how can I escape the judgment of God? If anything is lost in this culture, it's the idea that human beings are privately, personally, individually, ultimately, inexorably accountable to God for their lives. See, you know what this culture doesn't want to be? We don't want to be accountable for anything. Our lives personally, individually, because we love being individuals. My individual faith, my little thing. We create our little safety boxes. But the reality is my life is going to be accountable before God someday. Your life, you're going to have to give an account for your life someday. And we don't live with a fear like that because we don't live under authority. All we do all day is just question authority. All we do all day is just kind of sit around doing our own thing. And we never get it. And we never get the purpose of the cross was the fact that all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all heard that statement, Jesus died for me. The statement of the cross was absolutely necessary. It was a prerequisite for redemption immediately raises the question, why? The answer lies as if ever since the time of Augustine and Paralegus, with our understanding of the nature of the character of God or understanding the nature of sin, it is inevitable that we will come to the conclusion that atonement was not necessary for people. Your sins and my sins required an atoning sacrifice. It's an amazing thing for all of us to look at the cross and say, God, I remember years ago I watched The Passion. Rod, you were talking about The Passion up here. That's what it was. Now, who was the guy who produced the movie? Mel Gibson produces that movie. Hollywood said, nope, too offensive. Well, that's because the cross is offensive. And all he did was portray the story of the cross, and he had to produce it himself with his own money became one of the most wildly selling movies ever in the history of Hollywood. And I saw the movie twice, and I vowed to myself I would never see it after one time. I saw it once at the theaters, and I remember I brought my guy who was my neighbor, a friend of mine who didn't know the Lord, and I said, why don't you come to The Passion with me? We'll watch it together. You know, and you go to a movie and you want to eat popcorn and pop, your pop slowly goes back in the cup holder, and now you're not enjoying the movie so much anymore. And after the movie, everyone is just quiet. Just quiet. You know, everybody's seen horror movies. You leave the horror movies or go to this, and you're like, oh, dude, that was so cool, the guy came after this. You don't do that the passion! Because it was real, it happened. We didn't make this up. We left there. And Greg says, Steve, I didn't know. 
suffered like that for me. He suffered like that for you. He dislocated himself here on earth to give light to men. And he said, now I want to have the necessity of the cross. It's not enough for me just to heal someone. It's not enough for me to provide bread for people. It's not enough for me to just do good works. What's enough is the cross. See, if Jesus would have just came here and did good things, a lot of the world would love that. He would be the keynote speaker at our latest TED Talk. And we would say, welcome Jesus of Nazareth. He will tell us how to live a good life. But see, if it would have ended there, it wouldn't have been enough. Jesus knew what the world needed was an atoning sacrifice. And what has left our Christian theology, our evangelical movements of trying to move with the dogmas of the current culture and trying to appease the giants, we have lost the message of the cross and the necessity of the cross. I am not here to please man. I am here to please God. Mark Sayers writes, those who believe that Christianity can be saved as if it needed saving, made relevant for the modern world by removing its structures and traditions and dogmas ultimately placed the work of salvation in their own hands. Jesus didn't need to die on the cross and humans are inherently good. All Jesus had to do was keep good community vibes happening, keep the loaves of fish coming, avoid too many rules and strictures, and all would have been well. And isn't that where we're at now with the church? Let's not create too many waves. Let's not rock the boat too much. And Jesus got pretty too really close. He had a ton of people coming and seeing him. He had all the crowds, man. This is great. We're doing good. And all the crowds, he fed them. And then he realized they were just there for the meal campaign. They were just there for another meal. So let's follow Jesus around. He'll bake us some more loaves and do some more fish for us. Let's see the next miracle. And Jesus just saw right there that these people weren't interested in becoming disciples. They were interested in sitting on their hands and saying, wow, this is a great show. And Jesus said, if you'll be my disciple, you will pick up your cross and you will follow me. That's not too attractive. So after Jesus declares this, hundreds, if not thousands of people decide... You know what, Jesus, that was pretty cool. I'll post that on my Twitter and I'll get on my way. The culture we live in now is a spiritual but not religious subcategory that the individual chooses a picks and mix appropriate to the face, to the faith attempting to stare God in the eyes as our equal. God is not our equal. New Age theology teaches you and I that we're like gods, that we're inherently good, and that we just need to kind of organize and be better, harness the good in you. When my Bible teaches that I need to repent and I need to come under the hand of God and allow Him and submit my life to Him, it's completely opposite what the world teaches. And yet we continue to find our faith mix. And if you find yourself in that trap today of the faith mix, I challenge you to come running back to the cross. A.W. Tozer wrote, There must be willing to make Christ the one supreme Lord and the ruler in their lives. They must surrender their whole being to the destructive power of the cross to die not only to their sins, but to their righteousness, as well as everything in which they formerly prided themselves. When I read that, I'm like, oh my gosh. You know, it's really easy for us to give up the bad stuff, isn't it? I don't have to have you remind you of the bad stuff maybe you've done and the things that you're ashamed of and you don't want to talk about. I get that. But you know what? We have to also give up for the cross as Christians our righteous good stuff that we think we're good at. There is none righteous, no, not one. So we can kind of put our little badge up and say, well, I did this and I went after that. And God says you've lost humility and you're walking in pride now and arrogance. Even our righteousness is as filthy rags. So A.W. Tozer teaches us we have to give the junk up, the bad stuff, but we also have to give the righteousness as well as everything that you and I pride ourselves in. Are you willing to take the cross up? Taking up our cross is not so easy now. 
We can look at our shortcomings and sins and say, thanks for getting rid of those, God. But do we look at our sense of accomplishments with the same disdain or pride or arrogance? I told you I went through and I was driving and I was actually saying, Lord, forgive me. Have you ever had those mental times where you look back in your life and you kind of rewind to a moment in time? For some reason, this came back there. And I remember during my times at Bible school, and I went to this big mega church. It was really successful, and all this stuff was going on. And you kind of feel like you're in sync, and you're doing things right, and everybody else needs to do what you're doing. Any Christians in here do that? Why don't we all raise our hand out, one? Oh, I got this. If they just did it how I did it, man, they're like, oh, man. And I remember how I was, how I talked about things. And right there, as I'm driving around, I think it was an I said, Lord, forgive me for my stinking, rotten attitude. Forgive me for my arrogance, my Christian arrogance. Do you know the goal here, guys, at Turning Point is not for us to get sanitized? Do you know that? Do you know everywhere you go, you sanitize your hands because you touch something bad? Folks, you're going to have to sanitize your way into eternity if you keep that up. So that's not the point. The point here isn't for all us to be clean and nice and perfect at turning point. The goal of us is to pick up our cross daily and walk after God. You say, what do I have to give up? I have no idea. I have no idea. But I do know that you're going to have to dislocate first. That you can't keep going with the crowd doing the same thing and saying the same things and expect you to get on that cross and say, God, I'm going to carry that cross. You know, when Jesus picked the cross up and every man would die that same horrible death, do you know what? There were crowds all around them, but they were the only ones carrying that cross. Peter says, not you, Jesus. Our contemporary culture, even our Christian culture, would teach us that when we see a storm coming, we should run the other way. How many can say amen to that one? We should retreat and we should take a break. Human hearts and looks deceive us. Do you know Jesus had a storm coming and he knew it. And yet his disciples were trying to pull him away. In fact, when Peter said that, he said, Get behind me, Satan, you've set up a trap. It was like a trap or a snare that God was using, even through the voice of a friend saying, Don't go that direction. Don't go this way. Don't go after that. And we see storm comings in our life many times, and we kind of beg God, God, what's going on? What did I do wrong? What, what do I need to fix? It's supposed to be perfect. You know, we live in a culture now, I was thinking, I rented a car when we went to Colorado, and it was an SUV, and I remember it had air-conditioned seats, it had heated seats, it had a heated steering wheel, when I would turn left, if I was in the other lane, it would make my right butt cheek vibrate the other cheek because I was going over the lines. We live in a culture that loves comfort. And we think that the cross somehow will be comfortable for us. And that life somehow should become comfortable for us and it should tailor to my needs. And Jesus, you should tailor to my life the struggle I'm going through. Here's what I will tell you as a guarantee that Jesus Christ will be in the struggle with you. And that when you go through the fire, Jesus declares, I will be there. When you go into the water, you will not drown, you will not be burned. It's an amazing thing for our lives when we get the concept of Christ reviving us and renewing us and taking us through really hard and difficult places. Dangerous trap there means a snare or a stumbling block. Sandra, if you wanted to come up here and start playing. Why don't you just close your eyes for a moment. I'm going to read this again. Did you know... Did the cross cast a shadow on your cradle? Did you shudder each time your hammer struck the nail? How much heaven and how much earth were in this baby at birth? Did you know or did you wonder? Today, maybe in your life, there is a dislocation that needs to occur. And maybe you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And he said, come and follow me. 
You would say today maybe you've been deeply religious, you've been a good person, and your grandma prayed for you, but you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You don't know him in your heart. God is saying for you to dislocate from this world and join me. Allow me into your heart. Today, if that's you and you say, you know what, it's time now. I'm not playing games. I want to live a new life. I'm not following the weight of the culture or the suggestions of the culture, but I want to go after Jesus Christ in my life. I'm giving my life to Jesus this day. If that's you, would you please raise your hand? I want to pray with you. The next part is the dislocating part. Maybe you're a believer today. And just as Jesus had to speak to the disciples and speak very plainly about where he's going, maybe God is calling you, believer, to say, you know what, it's time for you to dislocate and time for you to get established with me. And you might have to walk alone for a little bit. You might not have a lot of cheering section, but I've got a great plan for you. And you say, you know what, I am dislocating myself today from all of this stuff, and I am going after the things of Christ Today, if that's you, would you raise your hand? I want to pray with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This dislocation is an understanding that you're leaving behind the stuff that you thought was of value before to chase after the thing of infinite value, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not the accessory anymore. He is supreme God and Lord of your life. He's not the cherry on top. He's everything to you and to me. We are giving our whole lives to him with reckless abandon. Today, shall we pray this prayer together? Dear Jesus, I thank you for the life that you've given me. And that you died a death that I should have died. You paid a price for me that I should have paid. I thank you, God, for the great salvation that you gave to me. Help me to cherish this gift. Teach me how to dislocate from this culture. Father, help me to have your mind about the things that I'm facing. About the things I'm supposed to let go of. Do your work in my heart. Do your work in my life. I am ecstatic that you would speak to me. I am humbled, God, that you would give me another chance, another opportunity. Thank you, God, for your life in me and for the hope and for the confidence that is built on your word. I'm living for you and not for me. In Jesus' name, amen. Folks, we have a living hope. We have a living hope. But we will always have the shadow of the cross. And there will be times where, and I, I, I want to push this through because this is where God hit me late last night. We must dislocate again. And it's not to run. But it is running in stride with God. And when people choose to veer left, and you see a whole ton of people going that way, that might be a good choice for you to kind of veer the other way. It might be a good choice for you to say, God, what is it that you want me to do with this? How do I work this out? What should I say? Dislocate. Do you know what thing I found this week too? And as you dislocate and as you know God, and that's the whole goal of dislocating is to know God. It's not dislocating to make yourself clean and perfect because you will never be that. No matter how good you become, it would never be good enough. Otherwise, we wouldn't need this cross. For it is by grace you are saved through faith. So it can't be that. What it can be is saying, I can know God. God, if you spoke to Moses, you'll speak to me. 
You know, as I, as I study, I sit there and I go, man, what did this great guy say and this great guy said? The Lord said, well, what, do you think I want to say something to you? Who cares what Matthew Henry said, Steve? What do I say to you now? This week, please dislocate in something. Father, I just pray a blessing over this whole body today, over your church. And thank you, God, we live in exciting times. More and more people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ than ever in the history of the world. More people are being evangelized than in the history of the world. And yet, God, there's darkness around us. And God, I thank you that you've called Turning Point to be a city on a hill. May we be different. May we be different than the cultural suggestions or what the culture would say the church should preach or how the church should speak to us. We want to hear your voice in the alone spaces. And Lord, if that requires, we shut our phones off and we shut our computers off and we shut our TVs off and we shut work out for a moment, then so be it. We want to become a church that dislocates so that you can speak to us and we become one with you. I pray the blessing of tenacity over each one here and those who have raised their hand and said, that's me, I am dislocating now, from now on. I want to live in the shadow of the cross. I pray the blessing over each here, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm done. I love you guys so much. And if there are some things you want to talk through to someone, I would pray that you wouldn't just buzz out of here. But if there's something you want to call to someone to action on, to pray with you before you leave here, find someone and say, God's calling me to dislocate in this area. Will you pray with me and stand with me and get, have the Lord help me give me strength to dislocate from this stuff? I don't know what it is or what it becomes, but I'm excited for us. I'm excited for our families. I'm excited for church and what God's going to do here in Turning Point as revival breaks free. Amen.